Brady, what's going on? Happy Thursday. Pete Callender here. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Uh, we're going to do some uh, some schedule juggling. I know I usually do the Alex uh, or Alec Murdoch trial update in the 2 o'clock hour, but uh, like I said, i got some schedule juggling going on. So uh, 2 o'clock, we're going to talk with State Senator Amy Gailey. Uh, and uh, before that and into that hour, we'll, uh, we'll cover the Parents' Bill of Rights legislation that uh, she shepherded through the state Senate uh, this past uh, few these past few days. And uh, there was a big debate on the floor as well. Uh, and so, uh, well, I shouldn't say a big debate. There were like three speakers. But uh, I'll give you the highlights of that, uh, as well as some other developments coming out of the General Assembly. They are uh, pushing a lot of legislation through and Democrats and media. But I repeat myself, they are not very happy that the legislation is moving, even bills that are bipartisan. All right, but let me start with the uh, sort of the update on the Murdoch trial uh, from uh, yesterday afternoon and then into this morning. So uh, yesterday when we spoke with Matt Harris, uh, one of the co-hosts of the podcast looking at the Murdoch cases and all of these very, there are various cases, uh, the podcast is called Impact of Influence, um, as we mentioned with him yesterday, there was a bomb scare, bomb threat um, called into the courthouse, but uh, it got cleared fairly quickly, about a, uh, I guess like an hour and a half or so, and uh, they resumed testimony. So here's how the Post and Courier uh, is reporting it. This is the Charleston paper. Avery Wilkes, Tad Moore, Jocelyn Grishashashak, I think is how she pronounces that. I don't know. Shashashak, there's... G-R-Z-E-S-Z-C-Z-A-K. Shazak? Is that like a Shazewski? Coach? I don't know. Anyway, here's their story. In a day disrupted by a courthouse bomb threat, state prosecutors on February 8th served uh, jurors a smorgasbord, which is a word you do not see in a lot of uh, media reports. So hat tip to the use of smorgasbord, of financial digital and forensic evidence in their effort to prove once respected Hampton attorney Alex Murdoch killed his wife and son. It's the 13th day now, the four, we are now the 14th day, but the 13th day of the trial began with questions about gunshot residue. We covered this yesterday that was found uh, on his clothing from the night of the June 2021 slayings. It then continued from Murdoch's paralegal, who said her worst suspicions were realized three months after the killings when she discovered a check that proved her boss had been stealing from their law firm. This was part of the the evidence being presented. There's a bunch of it uh, from various financial institutions and lawyers and paralegals and accountants and such where they were sort of uh, tracking down this money. And we're talking massive amounts of money that Murdoch has uh, allegedly stolen from clients from his firm and these are clients who suffered you know real harm these are they were doing personal injury cases and uh these people had been injured uh or killed or something and the you know they hired this law firm and Alec Murdoch to go after you know companies or something or people they get these big settlements and Murdoch steals the money either from the trust that would go to pay the the victims, the plaintiffs, right? Or 
he siphons off the fees that should be reimbursed back to his law firm. So um, he's got different tranches of money, basically, that he's allegedly siphoning money out of. Now, I am curious to know where the money is going. And maybe the prosecution gets around to telling us what this money has been siphoned off to use for. I don't know. We haven't seen it yet. Um, and that's why I thought this piece at Post and Courier was was pretty well done because this is, you know, you hang out in the courtroom during these trials and people talk, obviously, and everyone's speculating. And obviously, if you go online and read the YouTube comments, everybody's got theories and stuff. And, you know, people pick up, you know, particular theories and then they, you know, carry them forward as if they're the prosecutor or the defense team. <laughs> and like, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just watching. And I try to, I try to ask questions as if, you know, whoever's presenting whatever argument, I try to think in terms of what's the, you know, what are the gaps in this argument? And if I'm on the jury, what are the questions that I would have? And are those questions, if they don't get answered, are those questions, you know, important enough, relevant enough that I would now not be able to render a verdict one way or the other? So uh, this piece at Post and Courier says the day was emblematic of prosecutors scattered approach. And this is an accurate description. It's it seems to be just from the outside a scattered approach. They they kind of bounce all around. First, they'll throw up somebody who is going to talk about checks and talk about the siphoning of the money, and then they're going to throw up somebody like a GSR gunshot residue expert, and then they're going to throw up somebody else at the law firm, and then they're going to talk about. Here's the here's the rain poncho or the tarp, and they're just kind of bouncing around. And this is the South Carolina Attorney General's office that is prosecuting the case. They've called 39 witnesses over three weeks, and they bounce around between subject matters and different types of evidence. They say in questioning witnesses, prosecutors have fast forwarded and then rewound the timeline of June 7th, 2021 as well as the state investigation that followed. Right? They bring up law enforcement uh, officers. They responded. And so, like, instead of bringing people on sort of like one at a time and, and you know, building out this timeline, like a chain of custody, if you will, like, hey, this is how we collected the evidence, and then I handed it off to this lab tech. Okay, let's bring the lab tech up. Hey, lab tech, what did you do? Oh, I got the evidence. I did X, Y, and Z, and then I handed it over to so-and-so. Okay, well, now let's bring up so-and-so. But they haven't been doing it like that. They've been bouncing around. They have also peppered jurors with reams of facts and figures, often without slowing down to emphasize the relevance of the data. And I, I recognize this as well. And I, I'm, but you know me, I'm a patient guy. So I, I am willing to wait and see if they're going to come back and put a bow on all of this. And maybe, I ha- well, it's not even maybe, I have to believe, right? I have to believe that they are doing this sort of approach intentionally. There's got to be a reason for it. Now, maybe it's to keep the defense on the defensive, uh, to keep them off balance. You keep throwing different witnesses up at different times, and it it, it doesn't allow them to to try and punch holes in a in a in more of a that might be might be more visible. Let's say the openings might be more visible in a chronological telling of the story. What do I mean by this? 
if you go to a press conference, I, when I was a reporter, I'd go cover press conferences. And um, if reporters would latch on to one certain issue, it became very difficult for the person doing the press conference to keep up because as they're answering one question from a reporter about this topic, another reporter is going to think about that topic and they may think of a different question that the first reporter might not have. And so if they keep going one, two, one, two, and they keep, you know, asking questions, following up, it it prompts more questions. Reporters then can, can help to drill down and, and get clarity on things. And if you're bouncing around like this, maybe it's done in order to, uh, confuse the jury so this way you then offer them sort of the lifeline on your closing argument to say this is what it all means and then they can say oh thank goodness because I was getting confused and the downside there is that they get confused <laughs> and then you know they they say we can't find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt that's the that's the concern <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So court watchers are wondering if if the prosecution and their tactics uh, are going to confuse the jurors in the Alec Murdoch trial because they're not telling a coherent story for jurors to follow easily. This is uh, according to the Post and Courier. And I I, I would agree with that. They're not doing... uh, they're not doing a chronological telling of the story and building the case. They're bouncing around, and it makes it difficult to follow. And it also makes this already complex case seem even more so. Um, so what happened yesterday and into today? Well, first off, what we mentioned yesterday, the gunshot residue expert came in, so they found some on uh, the inside of a rain poncho. Uh, prosecutors got the sled division uh, agent to testify that they had found Gunshot residue particles on Murdoch's hands, his shirt, and shorts from the night of the slaying, as well as a blue rain poncho that prosecutors allege Murdoch stashed at his parents' house days after his wife and son were killed at the family's hunting compound. Uh, The defense attorney, Jim Griffin, worked to discredit that evidence, though, during his cross-exam of the sled forensic scientist Megan Fletcher, Uh, Griffin established that gunshot traces can stay on inanimate objects, including firearms or clothing, for years until being scrubbed or washed off. Now, what about the hands? Um, Well, that could be from when he picked up the 12-gauge shotgun from his house that he said he needed to go get for protection after he came home, found the bodies, called 911. Right? And then he, and when he, and he says this on the phone to the, um, to the dispatch, right to the nine one one operator. He says uh, they may still be here. They being whoever killed his family. Um, and so I'm going to go get a shotgun. Now she advised him against doing that, but he did it anyway. When the cops showed up, they took possession of that shotgun. And so that could be how he got it on his hands. Right? These are the competing theories. Um. They then called his paralegal, Alec Murdoch's paralegal, um, Annette Griswold, who uh, lived in Charlotte, actually, for a long time before moving back home to take care of her parents a couple of years, about 10 years ago. And then she got uh, the job uh, at that law firm working for Alec. And she was the one who sort of uncovered inadvertently uh, at first the uh, 
the financial crimes that he was committing, allegedly. They contend that uh, the prosecution is going to contend that he shot and killed his wife and son to portray himself as a victim and buy time to cover up his wrongdoing. So this is like to me, this is the biggest problem that the prosecutors are going to have to try are going to have to overcome if I'm on the jury, which is how do you get from white collar crimes, financial crimes to I have to murder my wife and son in order to get sympathy to buy time? I'm not clear, I, I, like, and I, I, I understand, like, you're asking me to, you're asking me to understand an irrational, insane act or a psychopathic act, and that's difficult for me, so I, I suspect it might be difficult for some jurors as well. Now, the prosecutors have been also eliciting uh, uh, responses from various attorneys and people in the community, almost all the witnesses they can ask, they say, okay, well, and after Maggie and Paul were murdered, did everybody suspend their investigation into the missing money? And they all say yes, that their primary concern was Alec. They didn't care about tracking down this money or figuring out what was going on because it was early on in their in their suspicions or even in their uh, their probes. And so they just forgot about it for several months. And so that's that's the prosecutor building that case. Um, the firm finally confronts. Murdoch in September. So June, July, August. And so three months go by. They finally confront him after they have uh, built some of the records of how much he was stealing. He resigns under pressure from, uh, from the firm and he would eventually be criminally charged with stealing nearly $9 million from his legal clients, his law partners, as well as others. Okay. So that then takes us to, uh, the bomb threat, they clear the courthouse right around lunchtime, and uh, they come back, and the prosecution then puts on the stand a guy by the name of Dwight Folkowski. He's an FBI electronics engineer who spent a year decoding the encrypted data from Alec Murdoch's 2021 Chevy Suburban. A year it took him to break into this box and to decode it because of the encryption. Under questioning from the prosecution, Falkovsky read through a series of timestamps that indicate down to the second when the Suburban was put into park and then when it's taken out of park. The records seem to align with Alex's story that he left the family's hunting property called Moselle on Moselle Road. That's why they called it that, uh, that he left to visit his mom shortly after 9 p.m., June 7th. The records also show the Suburban cranking up and moving out of park at 9.06. The vehicle is put back in park at 9.22, so it seems to be like a 16-minute drive from Moselle to his mom's house. Then, 21 minutes later, car is moved out of park again. And then, put it back into park uh around 10 o'clock, 16 minutes after the drive back. So it seems like the car getting put into park and out of park seems to line up with his uh, with his timeline that he gave to authorities. There are, But there are other uh, data points here. The car is then put into park and taken out of park. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
six times from when he gets home to when he calls 911. And he calls 911 on his car phone on the Bluetooth. So that's where that call originates. And so maybe it makes sense that once he finds the bodies, right, he then, if he gets in the car and drives down to the kennels where the bodies were and then drives back up and then puts the car in park, like that could explain some of that. But there's a lot of car getting put into park and out of park when he arrives at the house. Don't know what that's about. Prosecution should probably address it. But then you also have to layer in the data points that were collected from the cell phones. Right? And the movement and the orientation changes. Are, is somebody trying to face unlock, you know, the, the, the lock screen? And Alec is calling at the same time. And you start squeezing this window of opportunity down even further. So I stand by my original prediction. It's not even really a prediction. I stand by my original statement. I think the Murdoch case is going to come down to how well the prosecution is able to construct the timeline based on the cell phone data. They made that promise during the opening arguments. It's a circumstantial case. They're going to have to deliver. So they keep putting more and more pieces of the pie sort of on the table. But at some point, they're going to need to arrange that pie into a circle or something. They're gonna make it look like a pie again. Yeah, they're gonna have. They're gonna have to construct this in a way that's easily understood. So yesterday we had the FBI guy coming in, and uh, they they finally after a year, they uh, decoded the encrypted data off of Alec Murdoch's car, and um, what we can now do is take the uh, take those data points and plug them in to the data points that came from the cell phones. So there's a window here that starts around 7 o'clock at night and ends around 10 o'clock at night. It's a three-hour window. And what we know is from the cell phone data that was collected, we know how many steps were taken as measured by the, the cell phones of the people that are carrying them. And it's not, it's not precisely accurate, so it may come up at you know 200 steps when, in fact, it was 194. But it's close. These are, these are close measurements. So we have a lot of the steps that are being taken uh, all around the um, all around the property. You've got the cell phone data that shows text messages coming in when they are read, text messages going out, operations that are running, apps that are running um, and being used. It shows when somebody attempts to look at their phone to unlock the screen. Right, the phone wakes up. It, it, it measures that. It records that data point at what time that occurred. Orientation changes. So if you change the phone from, you know, horizontal to vertical, you, you change the direction of the phone, it measures that. So we have all the steps occurring. And then at about 7.50 at night, uh, the last call on Maggie's phone is answered or made. That's the last time that happens, 7.50. Um, her phone... At another, uh, about an hour later, her phone gets unplugged from a car, probably when she drove and arrived at Moselle, maybe. But the phone gets unplugged. 38 steps after that. And then uh, the family, supposedly, according to Alex, sits down for dinner. And that's around 8.20, 8.30-ish or so. 
That's when they're supposedly eating dinner. Um, now, just prior to uh, Maggie's arrival, so around 8 o'clock, 7.56, uh, Paul shoots that video showing his dad standing next to the tree, and the tree has fallen over, and um, and that puts him there at the at the scene. So you've got all of that, and then 20 minutes later, you've got uh, the family sitting down to dinner. Maggie is now there. Then supposedly, Alec Murdoch goes to take a nap. He lays down. His phone doesn't move then until after 9 o'clock. However, he told authorities that he did not go down to the kennels, right? He did not go down to the kennels where the dogs were. However, the video shot by Paul, you can hear Maggie's voice and you can hear Alex's voice. And everybody that's testified whose voices do you hear, they have all said 100% certainty it's Maggie and Paul, their voices in the background, uh, talking about how their dog Bubba had killed a chicken or something. So that video gets shot. That video is recorded at 844 so was he sleeping between 8.30-ish and 8.45? Did he take like a 10-minute nap and then walk on down, get into the video, and then walk back up and take off? But his phone doesn't record any steps the whole time, so he left his phone up at the house, went down to the kennels. That's at 8.44. Um, Paul sends a couple of texts, but then at 8.49, his phone locks, never reopens. Same time, Maggie's display uh, comes on, phone gets unlocked, Maggie reads that uh, a group chat message immediately, but does not read her husband's message. Then her phone locks a couple seconds later, and never opens again. However, it keeps shifting, turns up, turns side, turns up, turns side, the orientation keeps changing. And then at 9.02, so only 11 minutes later, that's when Alex's phone begins to record movement. And now he's got steps again, 283 steps. Now he's supposedly getting in the car, right? Well, not supposedly. He, uh, the car data shows he's getting in the car. He's making a phone call to Maggie. Her display comes on. His door opens in the car. The vehicle powers up. He stays in the car. Maggie's phone is now changing orientation. Doesn't take the call. So he puts the car in drive, takes off, goes to his mom's house. And uh, 22 minutes he spends roughly at the house, 21 minutes at that house, which confirms what the caregiver said. That's how long he was there for, only 20 minutes. But remember, she also testified that she was told by Alec, hey, remember the night of the murders, you know, he didn't say the night of the murders, but he said, hey, you remember I was here 30 to 40 minutes. And she got nervous, so nervous that that was not true, but he was telling her that that's how long he was at the house that she told her law enforcement brother. So this is the timeline that they're going to have to work with, and the defense is going to have to try to fill in some of these gaps as well. Then today there was uh, Chris Wilson. Chris Wilson took the stand, and uh, he's, I think he's actually still on the stand. Let me check. Yeah, he's still on the stand. And he is the uh, uh, longtime friend, former college roommate, law school college roommate of Alec. Their wives were sorority sisters. 
Their kids grew up together. Chris Wilson was cheated out of like $192,000 out of a K, uh, out of settlement money, fee money, that Alex stole and Chris finally confronted him about. But this was after the murders, a couple months after the murders. But Chris Wilson today got on the stand, and I'll tell you what he said in a minute, uh, but Don wants to uh, uh, be the program director. Hello, Don. Welcome to the show. Hey, Pete. Yes, sir. Uh, just uh, give my two cents. Yeah, sure. I don't think... I don't know who I'm speaking for other than myself, but this play-by-play mm-hmm. and this minutia detail on this trial is boring as watching paint dry. Okay. Well, I appreciate your uh, sentiment. I'm not going to stop doing it, though. Okay. There's other channels to listen to. Yeah, no, I know. You are free to do that, Don. Okay, good. I'll take care of Don. Yeah, no, no I, I, I understand. Not every topic that we cover is going to... Uh, is going to float the boat for every single person. I'm totally fine with that. And if uh, when, when I ask people, hey, are you actually interested in this topic? And I get people that are sending me messages and emails and uh, on live streams, they say, oh, yeah, love, love hearing the updates and all of this. So there are a lot of people that do like it as well. So it's also like it's a national story. It's right down the road. So, yeah, I think I'm just going to keep doing it for the time being, at least. Now, not every day there's going to be uh, stuff worth covering, and so I, I won't cover stuff that's not worth covering. But all of this was. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993, WBT. I know Don's not listening anymore. Um, or maybe he is, I don't know. Um, and look, I know there are people that don't, that, that are not, uh, captivated by the, the coverage of the Murdoch trial. I, I, I recognize that, but, um, but a lot of people are, <laughs> a lot of people are, and we're going to get to other topics. I'm going to, I've only been devoting, you know, one hour a day if warranted to these, uh, topics. And so far the last couple of days, it has been warranted. There've been really big developments and, uh, so response to Don's, uh, I call them the program director, types of uh, <laughs> types of emails or calls, which are people who you know want to direct the coverage of of what I cover and what I talk about or um, what we focus on. Uh, so uh, Don, he says it's it's so it's boring. It's like watching paint dry, I, and I'm sure that is his experience. I mean, I don't know about watching paint dry. I don't know how much I, I don't have experience watching paint dry. I don't usually watch it dry. Just let it happen. And then I come back into the room anyway. OK, doesn't matter. So Jason uh, says, Pete, keep up the coverage on the trial. On another note, you are killing me with your response to the caller who doesn't like the coverage. It was beautiful. Chef's kiss. <laughs> uh, Jeff says, taking bets on whether Don really switched channels or not. I bet he didn't. I like the play by play on the trial. I find it all very informative. Thank you, Pete. And at Patriot Girl says, for what it's worth, I think the coverage trial is riveting. Uh, so, I don't know. It's breaking three to one against Don, but I don't know. Like I said, I, like, I don't turn the whole show over to the, uh, to the uh, trial coverage. But when warranted, yeah. I think some days I've done like half an hour, um, two segments on it. But Chris Wilson, friend, law school roommate, wives, uh, uh, same sorority uh, as Alec Murdoch's wife, um, they went. They all went to school together. They knew each other. They went to Carolina games together. Um, 
they would work together when they were uh, lawyers down in Hampton in that area. And he was in Bamberg, I think. And um, and so they, they worked together uh, when Chris was starting out his law firm. He was smaller and uh, he would use Alec because he had a bigger firm and they had a lot more resources. And so they could front the costs of like getting experts and all that stuff for these uh, for these cases. And then they would pay them all uh, pay themselves back if they won the big settlements and stuff. So he had done a lot of work with Alec over the years, and eventually they do a work uh, they do work on a, a case against Mack Truck, and uh, they win. And this is where sort of the the whole thing falls apart because Alec steals a whole bunch of the money that was supposed to be in trust for the clients, and then he uses Chris Wilson as an alibi essentially, and lies to Chris in order to cover his tracks with his law firm. And then is, uh, and that's sort of the, it's right before this is the, this is what the, um, the law firm had discovered and they confronted him with the day of the murders. This was where that case came from. Then the murders occur. Everybody puts the investigation on the back burner. Fast forward to September 4th, 2021. And Chris confronts Alec because he had just gotten a call from the law firm saying, uh, Alec has been stealing from us, and he's uh, been addicted to drugs. And Chris then confronts Alec. Alec confirms, yes, I've been stealing money from clients, from the law firm, from others for 20 years, and I've got an opioid addiction. And Chris said he had no idea that that was the case. Knew the guy for 20 years, never knew it. And now that's into the, now that's into evidence. So the prosecution has now gotten it into evidence about the drug addiction. That's the key from today. They were not able to get into evidence Chris Wilson's account of the the fake suicide on the side of the road. The judge did not allow him to testify to that because he didn't have personal knowledge. (laughs) 